Tell the Truth to Yourself by Heather Platt. There's an Avett Brothers song that often plays on a loop in my head, especially when I find myself behaving in a way that's not entirely aligned with my values. Tell the truth to yourself and the rest will fall in place. I lied to the doctor. I lied to my lover. I want to make amends, but where do I start? Tell the truth to yourself and the rest will fall in place. I've been thinking about that song this week in relation to the people who died on the Titan submersible. After the Titan disappeared, stories started to surface about the questionable safety of the vessel, and I couldn't help but wonder how much those on board and those who sold them their seats had to lie to themselves to justify their belief that they were making a safe and wise choice. There's a story, for example, of the Ocean Gate CEO who'd been told, I think you are potentially placing yourself and your clients in a dangerous dynamic. In your race to Titanic, you are mirroring that famous catch cry, she is unsinkable. The CEO responded that he was tired of industry players who try to use a safety argument to stop innovation. That's a person whose singular, stubborn focus blinded him to the ways he was lying to himself. I recognize the self-deception involved in those choices partly because I too have been guilty of it. I may not have ever chosen something that dangerous or put other people's lives at risk in that way, but I've certainly had moments when I wanted something badly enough that I was willing to ignore red flags and my own internal voice of reason. Who among us hasn't been guilty of that kind of self-deception that allows us to justify a choice or hang on to a belief system? Even though there were risks involved, we knew we were being selfish, people were getting hurt, we were contributing to harmful systems, or we were out of alignment with our own values. Most of us think of ourselves as honest people, and yet, if we really examine the ways in which we lie to ourselves, we might be surprised to find more layers of deception than we feel comfortable admitting. We lie about the real reasons for past and future poor choices. We lie to cover up parts of ourselves we're ashamed of. We lie because we don't want to take responsibility for things we did in the past that hurt people. We lie because we don't want to change our poor behavior. We even lie about lying. Self-deception is a puzzling thing, isn't it? If we believe ourselves to be fundamentally honest people, why do we try to convince ourselves of untrue things? According to David Robson, in an article he wrote for BBC, we lie to ourselves to protect our self-images, which allows us to act immorally while maintaining a clear conscience. When our egos are at stake, as was certainly the case for the CEO who convinced himself the Titan was safe, we do what we can to prop up those egos and convince ourselves we are still good, honorable people. When it comes to our fragile egos, the truth can certainly hurt. In their book, Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me, Why We Justify Foolish Beliefs, Bad Decisions, and Hurtful Acts, Carol Tavris and Elliot Aronson explain that this kind of truth-telling causes cognitive dissonance, where we have to hold two seemingly opposing ideas at the same time. 
Quote, cognitive dissonance is a state of tension that occurs when a person holds two cognitions, ideas, attitudes, beliefs, opinions, that are psychologically inconsistent with each other, such as smoking is a dumb thing to do because it could kill me, and I smoke two packs a day. Dissonance produces mental discomfort that ranges from minor pangs to deep anguish. People don't rest easy until they find a way to reduce it. End quote. When you try to hold two seemingly opposing beliefs like I'm a good person and I'm making a choice that might put people's lives at risk, the discomfort can become so unbearable that you'll want to find a way to minimize or numb it. In order to minimize it, you have to choose to lean in the direction of one or the other of those opposing beliefs and disavow the other. Because you don't want to believe poorly about yourself, your tendency will be to lean in the direction of, I'm a good, smart, honest, trustworthy person. Once you choose to lean in that direction, you'll need to find more information to convince you that that's the right choice. So you'll start to justify yourself. All of those other people are getting in the way of innovation, you might tell yourself if you're the CEO of a company sending submersibles under the ocean. Or, I deserve this success because I've worked hard for it all of my life. Or, my instincts are better than theirs. To shut out the voices of doubt in your own head, you'll likely work extra hard to convince everyone else that the lies you're telling yourself are true. This is where confirmation bias comes in. Once you've chosen a belief, your bias will be toward whatever information confirms that belief. You'll read reports and stories that validate what you believe to be true. You'll surround yourself with people who hold the same belief and singular focus that you have. You'll argue with anyone who presents evidence otherwise. And possibly, as in the case of the CEO, you might fire them because you're now invested in this belief and to acknowledge any holes in your theory would be embarrassing and too much of a loss for your ego and your bank account. The more you invest in a belief, the more you're going to invest in hanging on to it. Unfortunately, when we choose beliefs that are different from the beliefs of the people we're in relationship with, we can find ourselves slipping down the justification triangle and moving further and further apart. In the beginning, we might be fairly close in our beliefs and we're able to see each other's perspectives fairly clearly and with open minds. But when one chooses one side of the triangle and the other chooses the other side, then both begin to justify their beliefs and gather information that feeds their confirmation bias. Eventually, they find themselves far away from the other person and can't see the other person's perspective. It can be a huge blow to the ego to wake up one day and realize you might be wrong and that you've alienated yourself from anyone who tried to reveal that to you. It can be an even more significant blow if that waking up causes you to suddenly see that you've hurt people. Your choices might not have been as devastating as those of the CEO of OceanGate, but all of us have, at one time or another, clung to a belief or justified a choice that we later regretted and that might have caused harm. 
I've been listening to The Extraordinary Life of an Ordinary Man, Paul Newman's autobiography, and I was especially struck by the chapter in which he wrestled with the regrets he had about his parenting choices. His son Scott's death from a drug overdose made him especially conscious of what it was like for his children to grow up with an emotionally distant celebrity for a father. In grieving his son's death, he had to come to terms with how his parenting and the ways in which he hadn't worked to heal his own childhood wounds contributed to his son's pain. He realized, for example, that one of his patterns was to become sarcastic in the face of his children's failures in much the way his father had treated him. As a parent, I can relate to this internal struggle that Paul Newman wrote about, Cognitive dissonance and self-deception are very real when you want to believe that you were a decent parent and yet you're faced with the ways in which your own insecurity, selfishness, and or unhealed wounds landed on your children's shoulders. One of the questions I continue to wrestle with as we grow the work of the Center for Holding Space is, what does it take to hold space for ourselves and each other so that we can tell the truth to ourselves? How do we create spaces that are safe enough so that we can be brave in facing mistakes we've made and harm we may have caused? This feels like a critical line of inquiry right now, especially when there are daily examples of people slipping down the triangle and clinging to beliefs that cause harm. One of the things I'm most certain about is that we start with tenderness, both for ourselves and for each other. We start by tenderly holding the fragile parts of ourselves that are fiercely protective of that fragility. We recognize that those are wounded little child parts who want to be loved and accepted and are afraid that if they are found to have done wrong, then they'll no longer be worthy of love. We let those parts know that we won't abandon them, even if they've been abandoned in the past. Note, when I talk about our parts, I'm inspired by Internal Family Systems, the work of Richard Schwartz. Secondly, we grow our skills in holding liminality. We stretch ourselves beyond the kind of binary thinking that tries to reduce complexity to black and white, right and wrong, and good and evil. We learn to see that there are shades of gray and we practice holding space for ourselves even when our scared child parts want us to run from the pain caused by the dissonance. We practice grace and self-forgiveness and we hold space for all of the complexity of the emotions that might surface, the grief, fear, regret, shame, etc. Thirdly, we shore up our resources and deepen our practices so that we are strong enough to hold the liminality and dissonance. We make connections with people who know how to hold complexity and who won't abandon us as we wrestle. We find embodiment practices that help to soothe our activated nervous systems and ground us when we feel wobbly. We spend time in nature and lean on our own spirituality. Fourthly, we dare to challenge ourselves. We don't settle with, that's just the way I am, thinking, or I'm too old to change. We lean into the discomfort and we commit to our own healing and growth. We do the hard work of repair when we recognize that our choices have caused harm. We hold ourselves accountable and we evolve.
After about 10 years of teaching people how to hold space, I feel especially passionate about helping people grow their capacity for holding this kind of complexity in themselves and in others. This to me is some of the most important personal development work that we each can do. In a world that feels increasingly wobbly while we face the impact of climate change and continue to grapple with what a pandemic did to us all, where we witness the increase in hate crimes against the LGBTQIA community and the ongoing oppression of BIPOC people, we need emotionally mature people who know how to ground themselves and not shatter from the pain. People who know how to tell the truth to themselves and then push themselves to do better. With this in mind, I've created a brand new program called A Full-Bodied Life. On the surface, it's about seeking more joy, connection, embodiment, and love. And on a deeper level, it's about strengthening our capacity for liminality and dissonance. There are lessons that straddle what are often expressed as binary, paradoxical ideas, but that we need to the capacity to hold side by side. Lessons on centering joy and also letting ourselves cry old tears, on living vibrant embodied lives and also befriending death and our body's limitations, on learning to be alone and also leaning into community, on witnessing what is systemic and also honoring what is personal, on healing trauma and also choosing not to cling to victim stories. The course can be taken as a self-study program and you can also join the community to be part of an ongoing conversation. I look forward to exploring with you what it takes to strengthen this capacity. May we all learn to be more and more truthful with ourselves. You can find the new course at afullbodiedlife.com.